WUOG 90.5 FM presents Out There, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theory, the paranormal, and other bizarre undercurrents of the human psyche. The views expressed on this program do not reflect those of WUOG 90.5 FM, the University of Georgia, or the Board of Regents. It's Out There with your hosts, Raymond and Joe. Hey out there, and thanks for tuning in to another edition of WOG's Out There Radio. My name is Raymond Wiley. And I'm Joe McFall. That's right. You had to you had to keep him waiting for just half a second there, right? Yeah. Exactly. You, know, you got you to mix it up a little bit. You exactly. Know? And, uh, you know, before we get any farther today, we'd like to welcome John Goulson. He's our producer for tonight, and he'll be our producer for the next couple of weeks. Thanks, got, John. Got a new guy in the booth. Uh, <laughs> he, seemed, he seemed a little nervous. I saw his, <laughs> saw his hand shaking a little bit out there, but you're doing fine, homie, so don't worry. Anyway, uh, as you bet, probably already know, we're uh, WOG's weekly show about the occult, conspiracy theories, and the paranormal. We usually sit around here and talk uh, announcements for about five minutes, but we've really got a rush today because we've got a long and good interview. It's a really good interview. We It's the second part of our interview with Dick J. Revis, who is an expert on the the Branch Davidian Waco tragedy from 1993, and man, if you listen to it last week, you're going to really like it. You're going to love it this week because it gets a lot better. He's uh, author of the book The Ashes of Waco, came out in 1995 on Syracuse University Press. He currently teaches journalism at uh, NC State, and it it was just a great interview, very enlightening, and we we came to the end of it thinking we were going to get conspiracy theories, but the things that he told us that were solid facts were just as bad as any conspiracy theory that we had ever heard before yeah yeah so lastly i guess before we get to the interview uh, if you want to give us a call the 800 number is 1-800-960-2289 and also you can reach us here locally in athens at 706-542-8476 we'll also be online on our aol instant messenger screen name out there radio right and in the omnisound radio one.net chat rooms which is uh, our internet affiliate and uh, you can find all this information on our webpage www.wuog.org slash out there there's a little contacts button right and if you have problems bringing that up I've, I've had a few friends who've had problems bringing it up in internet explorer if you have problems with that just capitalize the uh, o and the t at the beginning of yeah. each word and yeah. out there and it'll it'll bring it right up Anyway, I guess without... Oh, you know what I did? I did want to give a shout-out. If you are listening to us in India tonight, <laughs> uh, we, heard, we heard... Big mad props to India. Exactly. Send Omaha, us, Nebraska, big mad props. Miami Beach. Send us an email. Let us know because we, we've, we've heard that you're out there and uh, we're not going to forget you. Outthereradio at gmail.com. Raymond, let's get to this interview. Absolutely. Because it's exciting. All right, you ready for us, John? All right, kick it over, buddy. Okay, well, uh, we're back here on Out There, getting all geared up to do the second half of our interview with Dick J. Revis. How are you, uh, Mr. Revis? Revis? All right. Well, good, good. Um, so in our first segment, we talked uh, a little bit about the background of the Branch Davidians and what led up to the siege, and then we also talked about um, the day of the raid and sort of the things that happened then, and we stopped there. Um, we figured it was a good stopping point. And in, in this segment, we're going to talk about uh, the siege uh, the final day of the siege and the fire, and then some stuff that's happened subsequent to all that, especially the congressional investigations. So, um, 
Yeah, let's, let's just get it started. How are you, Joe? Hey, I'm doing good. Excellent. How about you, Rand? <laughs> I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. So, um, yeah, we, we finished up, Dick, uh, in the last segment talking about uh, the end of, this, of the, um, the raid, and we sort of ended with the ATF sort of backing off from the compound. Um, talk to us a little bit about uh, how... Uh, the siege itself was set up in the subsequent day or two, and the FBI coming in, uh, the use of the tanks also would probably be a good thing to talk a little bit about, too. When the ATF raided on February the 28th, four of its people got killed and about 20-something of them got wounded. And the ATF ran out of ammunition and literally had to retreat. If you ever see footage of it, they're retreating in defeat. In other words, the Davidians drove them off. And they get back into town, and the ATF doesn't have enough troops to launch a counter, a a second attack. And so they call in the FBI's, the FBI's hostage rescue people and all of its ninja men. And the FBI borrows tanks at Fort Hood, a military base nearby, and by midnight, a little after 11 o'clock at night, the FBI and its tanks are coming in. And they set up a perimeter with five or six sniper positions around Mount Carmel, which is about 75 acres. And they put tanks in there, too, and start running the tanks up into Mount Carmel's property and circling them around. And... So you have this situation with tanks and snipers that continues for 51 days while FBI agents try to negotiate by telephone with the people inside, try to negotiate a surrender. Uh, You also have press conferences every morning by the FBI referring to the people in the House as hostages. And the FBI's hostages rescue team approached this as a case of Koresh holding all these people hostage, which was ridiculous. Um, what more can I tell you about this? Yeah. Well, what was the tenor of the negotiations? I mean, was was the FBI antagonistic towards the people inside uh, the compound? or I mean, well, the-, the FBI had relay teams of negotiators by that phone 24 hours. And so you can come up with any description you want of what the negotiators were like. Some of them were hostile, some of them weren't. What they all had in common was that they didn't understand the religion of those people inside. And only by understanding the religion of those people inside could you even understand what they were saying. And so I think the negotiations were largely wasted because they were unwilling to understand the language being spoken inside of Mount Carmel. I see. And and as all of this is going on, there's a tactical unit the FBI has that's working basically completely independent of anything that the hostage negotiators are telling the people in the compound. The tactical people and the hostage negotiators don't get along or didn't in that time. The tactical people are your athletic gung-ho types. They want to fight. The negotiators are your intellectual sissy types. They want to talk. I mean, that's the way it was seen in the agency. 
And so whenever the negotiators would make some headway, then the tactical types would go and get aggressive and sort of cancel out what the negotiators had accomplished. Hmm. So are most of these ex-military people who have just joined the ATF after their tours, or are these people who have never... I mean, what I guess I want to no, know... these is, are FBI people. Okay. And I think the difference... They're probably all ex-military. The difference is just in what you have to do every day. The negotiator has to try to solve the problem with words. The tactical guy has to solve the problem with overwhelming force. And... Both the negotiators and the tactical people got frustrated, but, you know, when a negotiator gets frustrated with you, he just says, we're not getting anywhere in these talks, why don't you talk to me later? And when a tactical guy gets frustrated, he takes his tank and runs over your car. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Let's talk about that tank a little bit. This is, uh, I can remember, I think it was Steve Schneider in one of his... uh, Ta- one of the tapes of him talking with the hostage people talks about, or maybe it's him talking to his sister or his mother about uh, how this is the first time that tanks had ever been used against U.S. citizens on their on the homeland. Is that true? Was this? Is I don't. You know, the posse comitatus uh, people or the people who make a lot of that act bring this up, and I don't think it's true because during the '60s. The National Guard was called in to police lots of ghettos in this country. Mm-hmm. But it's the only time there was ever a siege of this sort with tanks. Mm-hmm. And throughout the siege there... And, and you see, this was significant to Schneider because there's a description in the Bible of some chariots laying siege to some of God's people hundreds of years ago. It's in the book of Nahum, is that correct? The book of Nahum may have been where it was. Okay. I don't recall. But what I do recall is that they saw this as the replay of an Old Testament incident. And you have to understand that they see the Bible is always prophetic. So the fact that something happened in the past meant it would be repeated in the future. Mm. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about... Uh well, a little bit about. I, I just had a question, okay. real quick, because throughout the siege, they're also performing some like sort of psychological warfare, uh, blaring they call music. It yeah, yeah. I mean, they were blaring music, um, the Nancy Sinatra song. Right. These boots are made for walking. Good cries of, of of rabbits being killed. Yeah, yeah. Stadium lights and stuff shining on the telephone off the hook. Right, right. They were trying to deprive the Davidians of sleep. Yeah. As, as one of the commentators says, you, you want to drive them crazy so you can prove they're crazy, huh? <laughs> I guess right. so. Right. They were trying to deprive them of sleep and what all of the noise. They, they set up loudspeakers that played all this music and these weird sounds. What the noise did was stress the mothers so that they quit lactating. And oh that caused problems for their babies. It was a big issue over sending in milk. Because there were two infants born during the siege, right? Or an infant was born in there during there the siege? There were a couple born after this happened. Yeah. Okay. That's horrifying. And there were also a couple born on the day of the raid because when women die in, in late-term pregnancy, they automatically give birth. Mm. Oh, my God. Those babies were burned in the fire. But uh, in any case, what, what all that noise and stuff did... Uh, was not put the Davidians in a mood to believe that the FBI was their friends. 
right. right. was going to help them and be nice. Right. It was torture. Because they don't really know that, I mean, there's different groups within these federal organizations outside their compound who are all coordinating like different kinds of events like you've got negotiators you've got tactical people you still have atf people around and they're all kind of have these different goals and the the inside the compound is all one entity more or less well so, it's all the army of babylon right. i think the i think the people inside knew that the negotiators were having trouble dealing with the tactics because there were conversations to that effect. But it, it doesn't really matter to you when you're being attacked that your enemy has some kind of internal problems. You can't influence it. Yeah. Right, right. right. And um, so the negotiations largely were futile. Some people came out, but it wasn't really because of the negotiations, I don't believe. Mm-hmm. I believe 28 people. Let's These um, were mainly children whose parents wanted to send them out, and some adults who were the parents of those children or who were in trouble with David, meaning they had misbehaved. There was a group of them who, the night after the, after the raid was repelled, went and got some booze and got loaded. And David thought that was a, showed bad attitudes. And he asked them to leave, to surrender. Hmm. You have to see that their picture of it was something like being on Noah's Ark. The people inside this building, God has chosen. If they die inside the building, they go immediately to heaven. Who would want to leave the building under those circumstances? Because if you leave, you're with the world of the lost, and God is going to them with fire in effect by sending people out of the building Koresh is sending them out of the kingdom of heaven that's right yeah. he is he is uh, excommunicated them in effect hmm. and so nobody wanted to leave or nobody whose faith was strong wanted to leave right in fact some some who weren't even there during the raid tried to get into the compound get in yeah tell us a little bit uh, that's a disturbing story tell us a little bit about what happened to I guess it was three Davidians who tried to get in after the raid happened. Wally Kendrick, who's an old man, or was an old man at that time, he still is, and two others were in Waco when this happened. And they heard about it on the radio or whatever, or they called out and found out that Mount Carmel was under siege. And they said, well, we got to get in there. <laughs> All right, the army of... Babylon's attacking God's people. We're God's people. we got to go in. So they drove as close as they could get and then started walking. The, F- the ATF had the place cordoned off by then. And they start walking, and what happens is they run into the FBI snipers who are retreating or who are leaving. And we don't know who shot who shot first, but one of them is killed. And we even think may have, they may have given him coup de grace. One of them is killed, one surrenders, and the third one is captured um, when they were trying to get in. And to me, the value of the story is that they were trying to get in. That shows you that they thought about this situation entirely different than the rest of the world. Yeah. 
is there anything else we need to talk about about the siege before we get up to the day of the fire? Can There's you... one important incident in the siege. The FBI is running its tanks all over Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel had three big 55-gallon drums full of gasoline, regular unleaded and premium, or regular unleaded and diesel. I don't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And I don't recall exactly what it was. The FBI, one of its tanks, knocks over these gasoline drums. David picks up the phone to the negotiators, and he says, your tanks have catalytic converters on them, and they're fixing, they've just knocked over these gasoline drums. They're going to set this whole place on fire. And as it turns out, tanks do not have catalytic converters. David was wrong about that. But he thought they were trying to set the building on fire. And he tried to warn them not to do that or get them to stop doing it. A second thing is the Davidians claim that when the helicopters flew over right before the raid started, that they fired down upon Mount Carmel and that there were bullet holes in a ceiling. And that if you looked at these bullet holes, you would see that the ATF fired through the roof, which would have been illegal because government agents cannot fire at unseen targets. If you can't see through the roof, you can't fire into the roof because you might hit a child. During the negotiations, a lawyer was allowed to come in, two lawyers, to talk to David and those people. And they looked at that room, and their sworn testimony is that there were holes in that ceiling, and that, the, how do you say, that it was holes not from inside the building going out, but the other way. You can tell by the, the track, the, by the, way, the shape of the hole. And so David and them talked, and they said, look, they tried to burn it down by knocking over the gasoline tanks, and if, if, the, if we do all surrender... They're going to have to explain those bullet holes in the ceiling. What are they going to do about this? And they came to the conclusion that the FBI would probably try to burn Mount Carmel down. And, in other words, they were expecting the FBI to destroy, to burn Mount Carmel to get rid of those bullet holes in the ceiling. This becomes important on the day of the raid. Let's let's go to the 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 day the day of the fire and what what happened. The day of the fire, the tanks move in with CS gas. Now, CS gas is commonly called tear gas, but you have to understand, if you've ever had it on your skin, it burns, and it's nasty stuff. And the canisters that come in say, do not use this indoors because it's a fire danger. And... The one place we know of where CS gas has been fired indoors was at the house of the Symbionese Liberation Army in California back in the 70s. The, the Patty Hearst case, right? Patty Hearst case. Yeah. And that house burned down. Huh. FBI comes up with its tanks, and it has enough CS gas, according to plan, to shoot into Mount Carmel. We have to understand there are a bunch of babies and children for 48 hours but there's a little clause in their instructions 
which say if you meet hostilities, you can up the quantity of gas you shoot into that house. Well, the Davidians fire upon the tanks, which is fairly pretty futile because an M16 bullet or an AK bullet is not going to penetrate a tank. But the, but the Davidians fire upon these tanks when these tanks start knocking holes in the walls and shooting gas in through some booms and when they start shooting these canisters through the, the windows of Mount Carmel. People inside fire upon the tanks and the FBI guy says, oh, we don't have to wait 48 hours to shoot all this gas. We can shoot it as fast as we want. So they took the gas that they planned to distribute in Mount Carmel over 48 hours and shot it through the house in four hours, which means that the atmosphere inside of Mount Carmel was hardly breathable. The adults had gas masks, but as the FBI knew, there are no gas masks for children, many of whom were later found asphyxiated either from the smoke or from the tear gas or from both. In any case, the ATF is ramming holes in the building, even driving tanks into some parts of the building, tearing down the building as it goes, knock down one stairway so that the people on the second floor had no way of getting down to the first floor, demolishing the damn place. After four hours of this sort of treatment, of this assault, which I think should never have been launched on a building with children in it, timbers falling and all this stuff, Mount Carmel catches fire. And the rest is, I guess you would say, as they would say, it's history. Everybody inside burns up except for uh, nine people who managed to jump out of windows and on the first floor, some of them got through a hole. They got burned pretty bad coming out. But uh, most of the people inside die of burns and asphyxiation. I believe 20-something of them were found to have gunshot wounds. There is some people who say they committed suicide. Uh, we don't know if they committed suicide or if they were shot by FBI people. Koresh is found dead. It appears that Steve Schneider shot him and then shot himself. Uh, but this would have been in the last minutes of the fire. And if you see the footage, I mean, they weren't coming out of there alive in any case. Right. Now, the, the FBI says that no shots were fired into the house on that day, and they still hold to that. Do you think that that's the case? Well, I suppose it depends on what you mean with shots. I can't prove they fired any rifles at Mount they have admitted that they fired tear gas projectiles into Mount Carmel. And it took and them some time to admit that. after the fact that they fired at least one incendiary grenade into Mount Carmel. That means a grenade whose purpose is starting a fire. Right. Now, the, the incendiary grenade to which they admit happened about 6 o'clock in the morning, six hours before the fire. Uh, but... Each of their tank drivers had at his feet, he had a grenade launcher and a box of incendiary grenades and a box of CS grenades. And in the military, when they issued these munitions to people, they count them going in and they count them coming out. Meaning before the battle, they issue you a hundred of 
each, let's say, and after the battle, they count to see how many you fired. These grenades were not counted coming out of Mount Carmel. So we don't know whether or not the FBI might also have fired incendiary grenades. In the rush to fire them with two boxes at your feet, the same grenade launcher would launch either type of cartridge. They're identical in size. It's certainly plausible that somebody fired incendiary grenades into Mount Carmel, maybe without even knowing it. We will, as I said, we will never know. Uh, it could have been pure accident. It, it took. How long did it take the FBI to even admit firing one? I mean, they, at first they said that. Nineteen ninety-eight, they admitted firing. So one. F- five years at least before they even admitted to it. That's right. So what you're talking about is is basically rounds that come out of a grenade gun or a grenade launcher. Um, there have been a lot of claims made that uh, that automatic rifles were fired into the um, into the compound that day, and also that snipers fired that day. Could you, I guess, first talk a little bit about the if, if you're familiar with the shells that were found in one of the snipers' nests. Also, if you could talk a little bit about, um, hey, are you familiar with the story of of that? I think two of the Davidians, they were they were young men, tried to sneak out or tried to leave the, supposedly tried to leave the compound before the fire and were supposedly shot by a, a guy up in a helicopter, basically. Are you familiar with this story? You're talking about a guy named Riddle? Yeah, yeah. Well, the theory is that, I think his first name was James, Riddle tried to come out the backside and that the FBI gunned him down and then ran over his body with a tank and drug it back inside Mount Carmel. Now, here's the problem we have with that. The FBI, according to some people who've studied this, fired at Mount Carmel from the backside. The American people think they know what happened because TV cameras were trained on the front side. And so they said, well, the FBI wasn't shooting at them. But there were no TV cameras on the backside. And it's possible that the FBI was firing on the backside. It's just that the proof, if, if they were, the proof lies in the interpretation of some infrared films. And I don't know what to make of those. The people who lived through the fire were not on the backside. They came out the front side and, and out the chapel. Did any of them report um, taking fire from... No. Okay. None of them report being fired upon as they came out. And none of them know anything about gunshots being fired on the backside. But they weren't on the backside. The place where the gunshots were supposed to have been fired is on the backside into the cafeteria, which was on the first floor. We don't have anybody alive who was there. Right. But we do have about 25 I guess 25 people were found in that area, and most of them did have gunshot wounds. Is that correct? No. no. Uh, the ones who were found with gunshot wounds mainly were in what the FBI called the bunker, which what it actually was was a cold storage locker built out of cement. And uh, I don't know, it. Mike McNulty might have a different interpretation of this, but my feeling about those people is that if they had gunshot wounds, it was self-inflicted. That as the what happened in that cement room was that the roof collapsed and fell on people and buried people under it, 
about the time the fire was getting towards them, and that in that circumstance, some of them may have shot each other. Mm-hmm. So uh, another another claim, I, I think it's actually made in McNulty's film, which uh, the film we're talking about is Waco, A New Revelation, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of these films later in the episode. But um, he also makes the claim that there may have been a shape charge placed on top of this uh which is like a hand grenade, basically, or a TNT charge that may have been placed on the top of this uh, bunker and caused some of the caused the hole that was later found in the top of it. There was a hole found in the top of the bunker. When I say the roof collapsed, it may have been blown through. At least there are people who argue that, mm-hmm. and they are they argue about how the charge was planted and so on. Uh, frankly, I don't know if it's true or not. I know that those people did die from concrete falling on. Uh, but whether or not that concrete was blown, I don't know. It, my approach has always been this. They shot inflammable gas into that building where they knew there was no electricity and people were using lanterns. The building burns down. That right there is criminal negligence. Yeah. yeah not to mention given that, in there. If there was malice, meaning if they were trying to kill people, the effect wasn't much greater. Right, right. Most of the people died from the fire. I got you. So all the conspiracy theories, I mean, they're almost irrelevant in some ways because, I mean, it's it's obvious with just the data that that we have that we can look at and that is provable that, you know, at least this was a negligent act, this this final... We can account for three-quarters of the death by the fire. And maybe the other quarter did come from the FBI shooting at people and trying to kill people. I don't know. But I'd like to see us account for that first three quarters. Yeah, right. That, that itself is indictment enough of what the FBI did there. Yeah, especially the, especially the children. Yeah. And it did not value those people's lives. And most of those people were American citizens, and none of them were hostile aliens. Absolutely, and what's and what I think is really bad about this is that um, it's obvious that a lot of law enforcement had that attitude about them, just basically disregarded and wrote them off as people and didn't this care if they happen. died. What but, I think happened was that the FBI was giving these ten o'clock press conferences every day and making fun of Koresh, saying he was a fraud and a con man, and laughing at him and stirring up public sentiment. Yep. I compare it to the old days when, let's say, a black guy was arrested and put in a southern jail for supposedly raping a white woman. Some guy stands up in the courthouse square and says, are we going to let that guy get away with this? Hell no, let's go get him. And draws a crowd, and they go in and pull the black suspect out of his cell and lynch him. Mm -hmm. By television, with its daily press conferences, the FBI was saying, who is this David Koresh to thumb his nose at the great force of the United States of America? And it stirred up people so that people were saying, go in and get him. And it's what I call an electrical engine. And it, how do you say, that, that again just shows the FBI's whole attitude towards this. If you want to compare it to something, Subcomandante Marcos, Subcommander Marcos in English, I guess, the Mexican guerrilla, led a raid on January the 1st of 1995 
then retreated into the jungle. The Mexican army surrounded him and did not go in to get him. Because it says, if we go in to get him, there's families and children in there, and they might kill some of those children. For 10 years, the Mexican government kept a military force surrounding Marcos and the Zapatistas. Last August, the Zapatistas disarmed and came out of the jungle. Nobody was killed because of that siege. If the Mexican government can afford to protect children, why can't the United States government? Right. We got a lot more resources than they do. Right. The difference is we didn't value those people's lives, and the Mexican government does value at least some, the lives of some of its people. And that really came across in the months after the fire. I mean, I, I, I can only barely remember this happening. I was a, I was a, basically a child at that point, but... Um, what I do remember from that time is just a lot of jokes and just like you know these people burning ending up being the butt of a lot of jokes or the punchline yeah. of a lot of jokes and I just and that I mean even then I can remember that putting a bad taste in my mouth no but, it's exactly the scene that we had in the south in the 1920s when lynchings were staged mm -hmm. it's exactly the same sort of hierarchical hatred the nice. only difference is that the victims in Koresh's case were religious deviants, where the victims in the South were racial deviants. Right. And, you know, in our, in our case, in the South's case, it might be the Knights of Mary Fagan, but here it's, uh, you know, the ATF and the FBI, the actual government doing it, which right. seems... <laughs> and with the approval of the people. Now, the FBI has never said that it was wrong. But when the Montana Freedmen got into a standoff two years later, I think it was 97, maybe it might have been four years later, when the Montana Freedmen got into a standoff, the FBI handled it much differently, also with the Republic of Texas, much different. First of all, at Mount Carmel, the FBI did not let the family members of the Davidians go in. A lot of the Davidians had family members on the outside who didn't share their religious faith. And those parents, for example, wanted to go in and tell their children, David Koresh, Smavid Koresh, come out with me, I'm your mother. The FBI wouldn't let them in. At Montana, it let family members go back and forth. And it let lawyers go back and it let Kirk Lyons go talk to them. Kirk Lyons is a militia-type lawyer who Koresh wanted to talk to when this happened. And, and they wouldn't let Kirk Lyons in at Waco. And the long and short of it was that, oh, also, the FBI did not hold press conferences during the Montana standoff because it had learned that if it did that, it was going to stir up the people. What happened in Montana was those guys finally surrendered and they're in prison today. Now, they were not religiously as strong as David. I don't know that David would have ever surrendered other than under the plan they finally arranged with him. Yeah, let, let's talk about but, that a little bit because you talked earlier about how uh, part of his religious beliefs was that he was not to write down his message, that it was something that was supposed to be kind of put out through music or through his preaching. And 
a few days before the season ended, I believe on April the 15th, uh, Koresh announced that he was going to write his interpretation of the seven seals of, Revel of the book of Revelation, and then they were going to come out. Isn't that, isn't that basically the way hey, it was What going happened to is Koresh announced that God had told him to write, meaning I just got new orders from God. He says I should write down the seven seals to give to the world my explanation of the seven seals. And when I do, I can then surrender because I will have performed the task for which he put me on earth. David had developed an original interpretation or what he thought was an original interpretation of the seven seals. And so he said, God's told me to get this out. Once I do it, I'll surrender. And what happened was he started working on it and had finished the first and second seals in rough draft and the first seal was pretty much in presentable form was working on the third and fourth and the FBI knew this the morning the FBI came in with his damn tanks if the FBI had waited a couple weeks Koresh would have been through with all seven but it was impatient it's you say Waco is not a town set up for the tourist industry its guys were tired of being away from their homes and they were tired of Waco they wanted to get the thing over with and so even though the negotiators had told Koresh they would wait on him to finish the seven seals the tactical people won out and went in and started knocking down the building we now have incidentally this isn't just talk. One of the survivors jumped out of a window, and in her pocket was a computer disk with David's explanation of the first seal on it. So we know that he did some of that. So has that, and this is this is just kind of a tangential question, have, have those writings been released widely? Or are they, yes. are they uh, influencing other Seventh-day Adventist uh, sects right now? Or is I don't think so. Uh, the, his interpretation of the first seal can be found on the web. But the survivors, and I'm going to guess about 30 people survived who were followers of Koresh in one way or another. Nine who were in the building, another group that, that had come out and surrendered and was in jail, and then five or six who were out of pocket at the time who were in other states. Since the end of it, they've picked up a half dozen members, but they've lost that many through death. And they've had a couple of defections, meaning a couple of people decide that David was wrong. Mm. So they're going to be today more like 20 than, than like 30. Okay, so let's, uh, we've, we've finished kind of talking about the fire for now. Um, Let's talk about uh, what happened after the siege, uh, especially the trials of the Davidians, and then on into the congressional hearings, or <laughs> the many rounds of congressional hearings that have Let happened. Let me mention one last thing about the siege. Oh, yes. After please. Mount Carmel burned, now when the fire, when Mount Carmel started burning, people were watching it on CNN, and they called the fire department in Waco. They told the fire department... Mount Carmel's burning, sent out trucks. And the fire department did send out trucks. And when they got to the checkpoint, the FBI would not let those trucks in. Hmm. Because 
it says it was afraid the Davidians would shoot upon the fire trucks. Um, the building was burning so fast, I don't think they would have been able to shoot. But in any case, the FBI held the fire trucks until that building was ashes. Then they maintained their blockade. FBI and ATF vehicles are going in and out, including vans with no windows. If you'll remember, I said that on the February the 28th, the day of the raid, the FBI came running towards those front doors, shooting through them, and that one of the bullets that went through it, which is shooting at an unseen target right there, but one of the bullets that went through it hit Koresh. The ATF maintained that it never shot through those doors because that would have been shooting at an unseen target. It said all of those bullet holes came from the inside out, not from the outside in. And there was especially one door that showed outside-in bullet trajectory, according to the two lawyers who, who looked at the doors. Well, when the siege, when Mount Carmel burns down, the ATF raises its flag on Mount Carmel's uh, flagpole, and that door that had the outside-in bullet holes in it disappears from history. No one has found it, and it was a metal door. It did not burn up. Right. In fact, if you watch the footage, it fell forward away from the fire when that part of the building burned. Both, both halves of the door fall forward, and only one of them turns up afterwards. What happened to that other door? And that's indicative of a lot of evidence that apparently has gone up missing. Uh, we talked earlier about... Um, uh, a Davidian who tried to leave the the day of the the actual fire and may have been shot or the and like Jimmy I think, Riddle that was yeah Jimmy Riddle yeah and uh, I mean there are the whole the portion of his skull where the gunshot wound is just according to this documentary we watched missing and there are a number of other and and then things being mislabeled uh, you know flashbang grenades being labeled as silencers and the FBI's uh, you know, evidence lockers and things like that. It just the other thing is that the FBI claims that Koresh and them had forty-five automatic weapons, and those automatic weapons four or five years ago were still in a an evidence room in Waco, and the National Rifle Association sent people to inspect those weapons to determine if indeed they'd been converted to automatic fire. The FBI would not let them take those weapons out of their plastic bags to check the mechanisms. And, in other words, they had a congressional order allowing them to look at the weapons, but the FBI wouldn't let them take the weapons out of the plastic bags to operate the mechanisms to determine if they'd been converted. So there's all kinds of cover-up stuff there. I was about to say, that sounds like the, the usual bureaucratic resistance that most people that try to, you know, no, investigate. All, I mean, the cover-ups are endless. I'll give you another example. The Texas Department of Public Safety, our highway patrol, had officers working the, uh, working the whole thing. And I wrote under the Freedom of Information Act to get copies of their files on what happened in Waco. These copies were denied to me on the grounds that they were not in the interest of law enforcement. 
Now, you can't get public documents that aren't in the interest of law enforcement. What kind of freedom of information? Right, right. That's, that's, that's completely that ridiculous. That's absurd, yeah. yeah. So, and uh, I think that they were, uh, some of the families of some of the victims also had a problem getting autopsy reports of yeah. some of their relatives as well, which seems highly... Yeah, the irregular. autopsy reports are strange. There were problems for years with the autopsy reports. And if you talk to the coroner, and I've talked to him, who handled the thing, he, his chief problem was that he had ATF guys and FBI guys looking over his shoulder when he was doing the autopsies. And, how do you say, they were pressuring him for what he found. Hmm. So, I'm convinced that whether it was negligence or malice that the FBI was covering up, it was covering it up. Yeah, and either way, it's, you know, that's... Uh not how we picture our government operating. No. You know? There was another problem I had as a writer. I tried to talk to the FBI, to the ATF, and to get records from them. And they wouldn't talk to me, and they wouldn't give me any records, because they said there's pending litigation, which means that the survivors of, of the dead at Mount Carmel had filed suits saying, you guys are responsible for the death of my loved one, pay up. And they wouldn't tell me because there's litigation pending. Now, this seems to me to be a very strange doctrine from an agency that is supposed to represent the American people and be open about all its doings, meaning they should tell the truth whether there's litigation pending or not. Right. They should tell it before they go into court and when they go into court. Right, and you'd think if, if they really were telling the truth that they would come out and say something like that. You would that. think so, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. You'd think they'd have sent me all the records I wanted and talked to me all, all I wanted to. Yeah. But they would not do it. Um, and, I mean, that's what's called stonewalling, usually. Now, you testified before Congress, is that right, about this case? What was your impression of the hearings before Congress? <laughs> Let me tell you the, the whole story of that congressional hearing. When Mount Carmel happened, following Ruby Ridge. The members of the National Rifle Association, a lot of them, their rank-and-file people, thought this is the first part of a government move to prevent American citizens from owning weapons. And they were up in arms. They thought the gun grab was on. And so when Waco happened, there was a great current inside the NRA, which is one of the biggest organizations in this country, saying, go, go find out who the gun grabbers are and what they were doing at Waco. Investigate it. The NRA then goes to the Republican congressmen who vote, generally speaking, along NRA lines, said, please investigate this. They were all Republicans one guy from Oklahoma who was a Democrat, as I recall. They held hearings. They called me. I was the first witness. Um, My impression was that the whole thing was a circus because the Democrats were going to be against, how do you say, the Democrats were towing the FBI line, the Republicans were towing the NRA line, and nobody was after the truth. That's and 
So I thought it was all just this stage partisan circus. I went up and testified, and I'm glad they invited me. But there was never any hope of anybody making an honest report because of the partisan division. Yeah. Right. And, you know, Schumer came out so strong in those in those hearings, man. I mean, we were kind of disgusted by the way Schumer especially came well, off in those. it shows most clearly in the behavior of John Conyers. Right. Conyers is a, on the left wing of the Democratic Party, he is a man who I will always revere no matter what he does, Mm -hmm. because when Rosa Parks was starving to death, he gave her a job. She was on his staff. And in 1993, right after Mount Carmel burned, the House held a couple of days of hearings about Waco. Conyers was on the committee that was conducting the hearing. Janet Reno was testifying. Conyers asked her, when is our government going to quit killing babies? <laughs> he was thinking of the move massacre in the 80s. Right. When is it going to uh, quit killing babies and, or burning babies? I don't know what he said, but it was inflammatory as all get out. And she started her answer and in disgust, he got up and walked out of the hearing room. Meaning, in 1993, he thought this was a government outrage, what happened at Waco. By the time the 1995 hearings had happened, the party line had come down. Yeah. And if you'll watch any of the tapes where Conyers questions me in the hearings, he gave me a hard time. Meaning, he had been given his orders. Yeah. And he changed his own opinion. And, th- and these I are still p- forgiving that. But this is just another idea, uh, another example of how this was a partisan circus. Nobody was really trying to get to the bottom of things. That's definitely the impression that I got from watching the clips that I did. And that, and the thing is, you know, Conyers and Charles Schumer and a lot of the people who are on the committee are, you know, still in in the Senate and in, in Congress. Which is sickening to me because, as Raymond said, I, might, I consider myself, you know, independent. Like, I don't really subscribe to any particular party. I may be more progressive per- politically than most people. But really what I'm concerned with is, you know, the use of our government, the use of authority, and, you know, and the truth. And if, something, if an event like this is going to be used as a political charade, that's sickening to me no matter who is on what side. Well, that, I think that's exactly what was happening that is, is that nobody that government is no longer dedicated to getting at the truth of what happens it's dedicated to making points mm-hmm. and I complained to them for example about my problems with the Federal Freedom of Information Act if you write for government records for example on Waco there have been 30 exceptions written into the act since its passage act was real useful in the late 70s when it was first passed. But they've written in 30 exceptions and they've set up a procedure so that it takes you 18 months to get any kind of report at all. And if you go look at the statute that creates the Freedom of Information Act, it's not supposed to take more than six weeks. Right. And so the FBI is not complying with federal law in regards to the Freedom of Information Act. And I told Congress this, and I introduced into the record 
my request, which by 1995 were two years old. I said, two years have passed. They haven't satisfied them. Go do something about the Freedom of Information Act. They didn't do anything. And so my, my general interpretation is ain't nobody looking out for the people up there. In fact, I, I mean, maybe this is a little off topic. Under our current administration, they're making it even more difficult to for you know to have access to information. I understand that um, one of the things that the current administration has sort of made it more difficult to get through the Freedom of Information Act is a guide to how to get stuff through the Freedom of Information Act itself. <laughs> <laughs> if you believe that, you well, know. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's that it's that sort of mentality though that's definitely there. You know. No. Nothing would surprise me. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, sure. Because the, the Freedom of Information Act, when it was first passed in the wake of Watergate, was real good. And now both the states and the federal government, slowly, slowly over the years, have been trying to undermine it. And they've done a pretty good job. So there have been other hearings since then, uh, the most recent being the Danforth uh, hearings. Uh, have you been a part of any of these subsequent I, w- I watched. The, I talked to the Danforth investigators, not because they came to me, but because I went to them. And I was present on the day they conducted the gunfire test, which is the test of the of the FLIR thesis or the gunfire thesis. My impression of the Danforth Commission, when before it wrote its report, was that it was going to whitewash, and its report is a whitewash. Mm-hmm. About what you'd expect, I guess. Right. Not what you'd hope for, but... It's not what I hope for. Yeah. Um, but they don't... How do you say? The gov- for some reason, the government does not want to admit any errors. Now, bless his heart, Bill Clinton has finally admitted last fall. He, he said that if he had the whole thing to do over again, he would stop the April 19th. He would not have given would not have allowed Janet Reno to approve of the April 19th assault when they sent in the tanks with tear gas. Bill Clinton has admitted an error many years after saying that the people in that at Mount Carmel, what he said was a bunch of re- religious fanatics burned themselves up. He's now repented of that. The FBI has not done so to this day. I heard there's two things that Clinton says that he regrets from his pres- presidency. One is sort of letting the Rwanda genocide happen. The other is letting this uh, happen in Waco. Those are the only two things he regrets. In New York last last fall, and yeah. I was glad to hear that he finally said that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, justice delayed is justice denied. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Right. There were guys sitting in prison all this time who either fired no weapons or who, if they did so, did so out of what I would consider... I mean, to me, it's legitimate. Mm-hmm. If you think it's the Army of Babylon, right? right and they and nobody you told first. you it's not the Army of Babylon, <laughs> then I'd shoot back, too. Right. Right. So we've talked about some of these congressional hearings and how they're basically just whitewashes. If our listeners want to get more detailed information about Waco, what sources do you feel are, are the best, I mean, besides your book, obviously, for I them to go to? I think my book and I think the film Waco, The Rules of Engagement, good. Now, the first part of it's about, it's my book, mm-hmm. uh, or essentially it is. It's the sources they took from my book. Uh, and Rules of Engagement endorses what's called the gunfire, what I call the gunfire thesis, which 
says the FBI fired on people that day and tried to kill them. And I don't know if that part of it's true, but I sure couldn't say it was false, meaning I'm unable to rule on that. Those are the best two sources, and the report of the 1995 hearings of the, uh, that I spoke at, mm-hmm. uh, both the Senate and the House that year held hearings. And what they got is a mixed report in both cases, which says the FBI was heedless and, and stupid and should have made that April 19th raid, but still says the Davidians burned themselves up. Maybe another more general question, you know, because one thing that we can do as citizens is to become informed about what our government is doing. But beyond that, I mean, is there anything that we can do to keep something like this from happening again? Well, I think the FBI has made changes so that this exact event won't happen again. They're not going to handle it. They didn't handle it that way in Montana. Right. The other thing is that automatic weapons, uh, semi-automatic weapons are now legal again. Mm -hmm. So there's not going to be any more raids, at least as long as you can go by and you know, AK-47, that's not going to happen. The the greater problem is this. How do we deal with people who are different in our society, who are not not like our mainstream? Do we persecute them, or do we go out of our way to understand them and deal with them? And that's where the country is still living in the dark ages. And, I mean, we're seeing it right now in dealing with Islam and, and Arab Americans. And, how do you say, in some ways, I at one point made a, a comparison between Saddam Hussein and, and David Koresh. You actually Both of them had guns, we, uh, prohibited weapons, and the government's response is, let's go in and get him. And... Uh, that approach to things doesn't, I say, it, it has a record of not working. Mm-hmm. I read an article that you wrote fairly recent, recently about that very thing, comparing Quraysh to Hussein and Mount Carmel to Iraq, and sort of the way the government just kind of, you know, went in willy-nilly for what, you know? And could you talk a little bit about that, just sort of that comparison that you made in that, in that article? This is an article I wrote for counterpunch.org. And the truth of that one is I wrote this article right before the Iraq war started. And counterpunch wouldn't take it. And I sent it back to them a few months ago, or sent a version of it back, Mm -hmm. I don't recall. But the parallels seemed to me pretty close. You had a dictator, David Koresh or Saddam Hussein, who we thought was holding his people hostage in both cases, mm-hmm. who had prohibited weapons, who had shown no respect for the government, and I think that's true of Quraysh mm-hmm. as well as of Saddam. And our approach to it wasn't to figure out why did people believe in David Quraysh or why did people put up with Saddam Hussein. And in both cases, as much as bad a guy as Saddam Hussein was, people put up with him because he kept the country together. And our approach in both of these was not to try to understand why these men existed and why these men were leaders. 
it was to go try to wipe them to do regime change. Yeah, yeah. And that stuff don't work. Well, and in the, and in both cases, we're going in there and you know killing women and children and innocent civilians without really in the process. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We kill to get David Koresh. We kill seventy something people. Right. Get Saddam Hussein. I don't know if the number is big enough to describe this—the number of people who died. Yeah, and he's and Hussein himself is sitting in a prison somewhere. He's not. He himself isn't even dead. You know. Right. And let alone Bin Laden. Right. And the innocents Israel. paid the price yeah. here. Yeah. In, in, in both, both cases. cases. I mean, yeah. it's, look, it's it's use an armed force when you don't have to, and if you want to learn how to how to not use it, go talk to the Mexican army. Right. Right. Because. I mean, the Mexican army doesn't have a cleanest record in the world, right? But they sure handle that one with monocles, right? And if you talk to people in Mexico about what happened in Waco, I did at the time, they could not understand why the United States would send tanks into a building with children in it. You just don't do that. Which is the same way people in the Middle East don't understand why we start shooting artillery shells and bombs into Baghdad when we're trying to take uh, take it over. Because they think of the children and the innocents. And this quickness to use military force is just, I say, it's not even working anymore. And it never was a very good idea. Right. Well, amen to that. Um well, we're coming to the end of our, our interview here, uh, Mr. Rivas. Uh, is there any other points that you want to make before to our audience about this whole thing before we before we say goodbye? Uh, I think that if I had any advice to people, it is that when our government starts telling you that somebody's a bad guy, our government's not going to lie, absolutely. But you've got to think about it, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And you have to see if it's painting the devil. The devil doesn't exist. Or if he exists, he's not David Koresh and Saddam, and he's going to, you're never going to be able to identify him. Figure out why, these, why the, out, the out groups are what they are, and then see what seems reasonable. Uh, I see Uncle Sam now drawing Hugo Chavez of Venezuela as the next devil. And I would not be surprised but what someday we invade Venezuela. Hugo Chavez, whatever people think of him, got elected by the people of Venezuela for a reason. You have to understand the reason before you know how to deal with those folks. And the FBI, the FBI and the ATF before it just assumed, as Bush did with Iraq, that the out groups think like the rest of us. And so when you go to treat David Koresh like a secular person, you run into resistance you don't understand. When you go to treat Saddam Hussein as somebody nobody likes, you run into resistance you don't understand. The same will happen with with Hugo Chavez. Our government doesn't accept people who are different or who oppose it or criticize it as fully blown human beings it doesn't grant that anything they say might be legitimate thank you so much 
Yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up for us here, yeah. uh, Dick. Thanks for uh, spending so much time with us today doing this interview. Uh, we hope we were able to get sort of to the meat of what your book is about and sort of your ideas about Waco. And everything else, too. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. All right. Thanks for calling. Hey, anytime. Well, uh, well I guess that's going to wrap it up then. You have been listening to Out There, a presentation of WUOG 90.5 FM in Athens, Georgia. For more information or to subscribe to our podcast, visit www.wuog.org slash podcasts or email us at outthereradio at gmail.com.